You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to uh, turn to Matthew 28. This Easter weekend, we have been looking at the resurrection story through the lens of Matthew's gospel. And we're going to look at the final portion here, verses 1 through 10, together. And we are looking at the greatest story in Christianity that we have, and it's the greatest story in the world. It is a story that we'll see that we base everything off of. And as we come to our text this morning... I just want to note that it actually starts with, maybe the most obvious thing, it starts with a miracle. Look at verses 5 and 6 in the text that we are reading. Verses 5 and 6 say this, But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. You see what the angel says there right off the bat? He says, come and see. Because I don't know about you, maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, we love the resurrection, we love Easter, it's all wonderful, but maybe we've stopped thinking about the miracle that actually happens, and maybe we've stopped asking the question that some people in the building might be asking, or that people in... uh, North America and around the world ask, and that is, is this for real? Did this really happen? Is this a reality that somebody was dead and now they've come to life? And so the angel says to the audience right here, to these two women, he says, come and see. Essentially, he's saying what Christianity has said on and off well throughout its history, but what we should say well is, come and see. Come test this thing. Is this story for real or not? And so, before we kind of get into the implications of what the resurrection is, let's just think briefly about the trustworthiness of this story that we have in all four Gospels, and that we base our, as Christians, we base our life on this story. Is it trustworthy? And so there's a few things I just want to point out. And the first is this, that the details of the stories, especially when it comes to all four Gospels, the details line up. And the details actually matter. Carl Sagan, who was a well-known atheist, said this, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's a, that's a great statement. Now, I don't know what, how you define extraordinary, okay? That, that may be, there might be a spectrum there. But the evidence that we have here when it comes to the details is uncanny. Peter Williams, in his book, it's a little book, Can We Trust the Gospel? He, he's done a study of all four Gospels looking at the details in the narratives. So things like the names of people and how frequently they show up. The names of the towns and how they show up, the the places or timelines of all that they are. Even, he studied even the weather patterns with the associated timelines of all the stories, and the details actually line up. And most of us know that the details actually matter a lot. They, They tell us whether or not something is real or not. 
I remember a few years ago, I don't remember how long it is now, but Harold and Sharon went to California, and when they came back, they talked about being in the region where Liz, my wife, grew up. And so I was like, okay, I've heard you know, people say they go to California. It's a big state. Have you actually been there? And so then Harold starts telling his story like Harold is good at doing, and he says, we went to Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz Mountains, and we thought, okay, this is getting close. It's actually in the region. Then he said, we went to Mount Hermon, and I was like, whoa, not too many people have heard of that place. And we went to the Mount Hermon Christian Bookstore, and I was like, yes, I've been there. And then he even said, and we drove on Graham Hill Road. And then I thought, okay, I know he has been there, because none, probably nobody else really has been on that road, named not after Graham Hill, but, you know, <laughs> same name. But the details actually matter. They tell us whether or not something is trustworthy or not. And we experience this in real life. And this is what we see in all four Gospels. The details actually line up. But many people also just, they challenge the story of the Gospels and say, man, it really just fits into the myth narrative of the first century you know, some great teacher did all these amazing things, and it's kind of like the telephone game that over the centuries, the stories just kind of amplified and got better and better. And they would say, like, culture was influencing these first century followers of this person named Jesus to kind of create this story. But when we look again at the stories of the day, especially when we look at the Greco-Roman stories, and, and I'm not a scholar in this area. I'm not, you know, I don't know all the details. I just have a really thick book by a guy named N.T. Wright, okay, who is basically the, the expert on the historicity of the resurrection and, you know, whether or not its claims are real or not. And N.T. Wright says this when it comes to this kind of a story coming out of the Greco-Roman world. He says this, Insofar as the ancient non-Jewish world had a Bible, its Old Testament was Homer. And insofar as Homer was any, has anything to say about resurrection, he is quite blunt. It doesn't happen. So in the Greco-Roman world, the, the culture that the first century believers were in, man, were they influenced by it? Absolutely. They're speaking Greek. They're writing down their stories. They're telling these narratives. But the idea of resurrection of a God living and dying and then resurrecting in real time, this is not in the Greco-Roman myth narrative. And so this idea is new that they're bringing into, into the real world here. And that's not the Greco-Roman influence, but maybe it's the Jewish side. We also see within the Gospels this um, divergent opinion on resurrection. We see it multiple times where the Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of arguing over this thing. The Sadducees being in the camp that says, man, there's no resurrection. That's, we don't believe in that at all. And the Pharisees holding this, this view of a resurrection, but something that wasn't going to happen in their lifetime. It was going to happen at the end of time. So we see this kind of differing view. The idea, again, of the Messiah coming, dying, and rising to life in, in the real time of history, this was not in their imagination. So the scriptures, again, point to this amazing thing, that this miracle, essentially, that is happening. 
And, and maybe the last evidence, the one that is very telling, again, in was this a created myth or was this a real story? And this is the evidence of the witnesses. We saw in our text here, you can see in verse 1, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there's a lot of Marys in the story of the Gospels, okay? There's tons of Marys. But they were the first witnesses. And for a myth to get going in the first century, women would not have been the witnesses that you would want to tell the story. You would want some sort of like male witness to be the key cornerstone of your story because the first century view of women's testimony was way lesser than men. And yet here in all four Gospels, you have women as the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. One more N.T. Wright quote, just because we have to, okay? N.T. Wright says this, The point has been repeated over and over in scholarship, but its full impact has not always been felt. Women were simply not acceptable as legal witnesses. So if you're trying to hatch a plan to create this new sort of myth narrative of some great leader, you're not going to record in every single account that it's going to be women who are there as the testimony of they were the witnesses. So why are they in the story? They're in the story because that's how it happened. They were there. They were the first ones we see here in our story that witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And the angel says, come and see. Take a look in. See, he's not here. And so the story that we have is maybe not, you know, maybe we can still poke holes in it. Maybe there's still skeptics. Maybe you're a skeptic. You're in the room here and you're saying, I don't know if I believe this is like a miraculous thing. And the Gospels here are saying, come and see. Listen to the witnesses. Take it in. Wrestle with this idea. And throughout the first century, all the, the new believers were challenged over and over again to wrestle with the witness of the whole Gospel narrative, but at the text, but the resurrection so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, and we won't look at the text, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, listen, if there's no resurrection as a Christian, we stand on nothing. We're, we're, the, we're the greatest fools on the planet. But Paul says he's resurrected, and there's witnesses. He says you can talk to Peter, you can talk to the 12 disciples, and then Paul says there's 500 other people, around 500 other people that saw Jesus. And Paul says most of them are still alive. Paul's practically saying, I will pay your ticket to go talk to these people who really exist, who saw the resurrected Jesus. Why is Paul doing that? Because he knows that most of us at some point, if not all of us, have doubts have questions around this story. And Paul says, there are witnesses who told the story that we can actually see. Tim Keller says this, the resurrection was as inconceivable for the first disciples, as impossible for them to believe as it is for many of us today. This is truly a miracle that we're talking about that can be hard for us to take in because all we know is funerals. That's all we know. We have never seen a resurrected person in front of us. So we have to trust the witnesses and the accounts that we have. 
And so we trust these witnesses and we listen to the story and the narrative and we wrestle over the truths. And what is the reality actually of this Easter weekend? What is the reality of this resurrection story? Let's read again these same verses, verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 says this, But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. So the angel is waiting there for Mary and Mary as they come. And the angel knows that, man, there's going to be some serious confusion because Jesus isn't here. And they're going to be probably afraid because of this whole experience that's before them. And when they hear that Jesus is risen from the dead, I, just, I wonder, I'm just speculating here, I wonder if what came into their mind were the teachings of Jesus. Where we read one of them this morning here, Darren read it from Mark, but at least three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus warns them that this is actually how it's going to be. He's going to be arrested, he's going to die, and then he's going to rise from the dead. And every time, right over their head, you know. But I wonder if in this moment now, one of the Marys at least was like, whoa, that's what Jesus was actually talking about. It's actually come to be now. And so in their minds, suddenly the, the story, the narrative of God's work throughout history um, is coming together. This week I uh, learned a little bit about um, soap notes. Harold, again, was telling, Harold is telling me lots of stories, evidently. He's showing up twice here, okay? But uh, soap notes, these are notes that doctors make when you go into the doctor's office. It's to try to figure out what is going on. And essentially, you come in with some sort of idea of what's going wrong. Maybe you know really clearly, or maybe you just, you know, it, it's all up here. You know, you got some sort of sickness. And so the doctor then has to kind of assess and figure out what is actually really happening, asking good questions, an assessment is made, and then finally a plan comes into being. Some sort of prescription is put in place. God has also done a very similar thing when it comes to sin in this world. And he, it says in the scriptures, that he has been planning this from the, before the foundation of the world. God has a, a plan that he wants to accomplish to solve the issue of sin that has come into this world. And so in Matthew's gospel, the one that we're looking at, in the first chapter, if you page over there, you'll see it starts with a genealogy. It starts with this big list of all these different people, which is a funny way to start a book, but it's actually the the retelling of what God has been doing, working out his plan over time and over the centuries. And it starts with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I'm starting something new from you. And so Abraham leaves his home, leaves everything he knows. And through him, God says, a new nation will be born and, and this is going to be a nation that is going to be a people that will follow Jehovah God and they will be an example of what it's like to live in relationship with God. And Abraham hears in Genesis 12 that God is making a covenant with him. And here's what God says to Abraham. He says, I will, all the people, all the peoples of the world will be blessed by you. All the peoples of the world 
The plan is going to go through this nation called Israel and all the people. There'll be an opening of blessing to all the people of the world. So we see in Matthew 1, all these different names, Rahab, David, Josiah, God working over like hundreds of years, God accomplishing his purposes through all kinds of different stories and events. And then we come to verse 16, and it says, And Joseph and Mary, they're included in that story. Christmas time for us, right? Joseph and Mary have this miraculous thing happen where the incarnation happens, where God then comes in flesh to be born as a little baby boy. And like any good, you know, first century Jewish parents, they take their firstborn son to be blessed at the temple. And so you can, you can even hear Mary telling this story as a, as a mother. Years later of taking Jesus to the temple to bless him. And suddenly at the temple then, Simeon is there. And if you know this story, Simeon has been waiting, waiting at the temple. A promise of the coming Messiah was given to him. And Simeon's just waiting. He's getting older. He's getting older waiting for this time when the Messiah would actually come before him. And then Jesus comes. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus. And they put Jesus in Simeon's hand. Hands, hopefully hands, okay? If you're, you know, one-handing a baby, that's a bad idea. They put him in his hands. And this is what Simeon says in Luke chapter 2, verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the blessing that Simeon gives to Jesus. Into the world, Jesus came to solve the issue of our sentence of sin and death. The, the Bible calls it a form of slavery. And, and this week, actually, I, was, I just happened to see a news story about modern-day slavery that still goes on. I don't know if you ever think about this or are ever aware of this. In different parts in the world, this story itself was from Pakistan, where people are living in slavery. So here's how the story generally works. A young couple is maybe married and they are living in total poverty like less than a dollar a day and suddenly they have one child they have two three maybe four and then their little baby gets sick and they have no money to bring them to the doctor to get any medicine so they'll go to some wealthy landowner or a factory owner in the case of the story that i was looking at it was a a brick factory And they get a loan to help save their child. And then they become indebted to this brick maker. And so he says, okay, here's how it's going to work. You're going to make bricks for me every day. And I'm going to take the bricks. And I'm going to pay you a little bit of money. And then we're going to chip away at the debt that you owe me. And so the cycle begins. Year after year after year. And in the meantime, over the years, more kids get sick, more kids get born, more funerals, more this or that. And the, the debt just grows. This is, this is 2023 still going on. 
And then this slavery then ends up, and in the story, it ends up being generational. So people are tied into doing this work where they're paying off the debt of their parents or maybe even their grandparents because there's no way to get out from under this burden. Now listen, we may think, hey, there's like an earthly solution here. We could create like an NGO or something. We could, that would be possible and, and free these people from this debt and this slavery that they're living under. And that, that would be possible. And, I, and that does even happen, even within the story itself. They were talking about that. But in scripture here, we are told that we are also people living in a slavery. And our bondage is not brick makers. It's not some wealthy landowner here. Our bondage is to the weight and the penalty of sin. Every one of us is born into that. And there is no amount of good things that we can do. There's no amount of work that we can do to kind of pay that off because the only penalty for that is actually death, it says in scriptures. And I've only got one life to live and you've only got one life to live. So none of us is able to actually break free from the bondage of this kind of slavery. We're stuck in it. Unless God has another way. Unless the mercy and the grace of God comes in to save the day. And this is the plan that God has been working out. And this is the plan that we've been rehearsing even this weekend. Palm Sunday a week ago, Jesus' mighty entrance into Jerusalem. Then the, the turn of events of Good Friday where he's, he's beaten, he's mocked. He's pronounced guilty, and he's hung to die on a cross. An innocent man, God in the flesh, all a part of God's plan. And then today, the resurrection, where Jesus shows that all of the, all of the enemy's work, all that Satan is doing, all that he's been trying to accomplish, God now is like making a laughing stock of all of Satan's work, and he says, I have conquered death for the world, for the sins of the world. And so we celebrate today that God's plan has actually come into motion and it's accomplished through Jesus. He is risen, the angel says. So, there's this miracle of Easter and there is this reality of the truth of Easter, which brings us then to the joy that can and should fill our hearts as people. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. You don't need to answer it. But if I asked you, what is the most famous painting in the world? What would you say? The most well-known painting out there. I, I guess if, my guess is if we took a poll in here, probably the Mona Lisa would rank pretty high, you know? It's like everybody, maybe if you haven't even seen it, you just know it. It's this famous painting. It's pretty small. It's only like a couple of feet big. And everybody goes to see it. And, you know, there's, there's enough protesters even there that they've covered it with plexiglass now. Okay, there's enough pies that have been put on it. But it's the most well-known painting out there. And what is it about the painting that just captivates us? I mean, artists would say that it's just a beautiful painting. You know, the, the skin tones on Mona Lisa's face are amazing. The trees in the background... It's the little magnificent, but let's be honest. For most of us, it's the little smile, right? It's like the, this little, it's the corners of her mouth that we're all kind of looking at. And we're just like, what is she smiling about, you know? 
And I'm thinking, like, if she, whoever the real model was, did she actually have to, like, keep that little smirk the whole time? I don't know. But the question is, you know, valid. What is it that Mona Lisa is smiling about? Could it be that the artist was trying to capture some little bit of joy, some little bit of happiness? I don't know. But in our text here this morning, we see the result, actually, of seeing the resurrection come to be. Listen to what Matthew records here in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Both of those things coming together with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Here they are. They've been told to come and see and that Jesus is not there. And so now they're supposed to go and tell this news and they're running. And, you know, the unimaginable has just happened. Something they have never experienced in their life before. Someone they've just been told who was dead is now living. And so they're running. And I almost imagine, and this is extra biblical, okay, there's no canonical weight to this, but I almost imagine as they're running, just like a little smile comes on their face. Maybe like just a little Mona Lisa smile, just a little bit. As the joy begins to sink into their hearts that their Savior is alive. Because they've experienced the, the crushing weight of life around them for years and years like all of us have. And there's a story actually in John's gospel where we see these two ideas coming together just for a little bit. The, the weight of death and sin coming down and the truth and the reality of resurrection coming and they meet each other just for a little bit. It's the story of Lazarus, which if you're familiar with it, you know that Lazarus is a friend of Jesus and Jesus hears that Lazarus has been sick and it's not going well. And so he starts his journey to go see Lazarus. And then on the way he hears, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus continues on. He's going to go now to his funeral. And in Luke, sorry, in John chapter 11, verse 21, Martha, one of the women there, says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, often when I read, my brother would have died. I just kind of read it like I read it now. Just kind of like a statement, you know, just like, if you had been here, my brother would have died. But if you kind of think about it, it's not crazy to think that, you know, Martha is weeping and, you know, snotty and just essentially screams in Jesus' face, where were you? Like, I thought you were the one who could solve this kind of a problem. The, the sickness of my dying Lazarus. Where were you, Jesus? And Jesus says to her, Martha, he's, he's going to rise from the dead. And there's again this question that comes up. And she's like, I know he's going to rise someday in the future. But I need you now, Jesus. This is my problem today. I need you here. And what does Jesus say to her? In verse 25, Jesus said to her, Martha, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? There's that question again. Just like the angel, come and see. Martha, do you believe this? The idea of life after you're dead and also resurrection power while you're living is totally taken up in the person of Jesus. And so he's reminding her here, this is the reality of resurrection power, that it's all in Jesus. And now here, as they're running down the path, the fear and the great joy is coming together again. But this time, it's different. What happens? Jesus, maybe knowing that they needed like a little bit more assurance or something, like they have the news, but they need a little bit more, he shows up. He's there. Suddenly he's standing on the path as they're running to go tell the other disciples. And what do they do when they see him? It says that they didn't, you know, they didn't stop and give him a hug. They didn't give him, you know, like a a COVID fist pump. They didn't stop and say, hey, Jesus, you did it. This is like amazing. You're the first one resurrected. How does it feel? They worship him. They do. They fall down at his feet and they worship him. They worship him. What a response. What a, what a testimony for us to follow. This Easter Sunday again, as we rehearse the, the amazing story, the, the only story that we as Christians, you know, hang our hats on, the question for us is, What's our response today, this weekend? Is it worship? Is it, is it joy? Maybe joy and a little bit of a Mona Lisa smile? Or is it nothing? Is it coldness to the story? Is it skepticism? Where we actually see all of these things in the narrative. But we must ask ourselves again, What do we do with Jesus? Because this story was meant to be told and was meant to be wrestled over. Because we see at the end of verse 10 that Jesus says, Go tell my brothers, go to Galilee, because I'm going to be there and they're going to see me. They're going to have this very same experience and they're going to have to wrestle over what do we do with Jesus. And we know that Thomas struggled, Peter probably overfaithed it, whatever, and there's a struggle that everybody has to wrestle with. And so my challenge to you today is us this morning. Rehearse this story together as believers is what will you do with Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of this scripture. Thank you for the testimony of these women that was recorded for us. And Lord, Lord, I just want to pause here and as we prepare to sing and as the story is in our minds and in our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you make clear for us things that are foggy? Lord, we know that to see the the person of Jesus as lovely and beautiful as he is takes a miracle of the heart. And so, God, we're asking even now that you would work the miracle 
in our hearts for those of us who are believers, who are just not experiencing the joy of Jesus, and also in the, the heart of those who are here who have skepticism or rejection, Holy Spirit, would you turn the lights on so that we can all experience this, this miracle of joy in knowing who Jesus is. In your name we pray, amen.